back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk. I am Babs Rose Ivy. I'm delighted this morning to have <laughs> Dr. Janet Garcia Hallett. Hello, my dear. Good morning. You are jamming this morning. <laughs> oh, girl, Harry keeps me right. Harry, <laughs> Harry, <laughs> my producer and our station manager, Harry. He knows the kind of music I dig, and we got a lot of music that he could pull from. So he keeps us, he keeps us hopping over here. How are you? I'm doing great. No you complaint. are? And yourself? I'm, I'm listening. It's spring. <laughs> <laughs> okay. With some snow this morning. <laughs> not, not this morning it is a spring, <laughs> but, but it's been, it's been spring. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just you? waiting for the weather to catch up. Well, girl, we all ain't we? I mean, it's been uh it's been a lovely winter. <laughs> uh I cannot complain. We've had a Virginia winter and uh now we're getting a little bit of we got a little bit of snow one day and now it's a little cold today, but we'll we'll be back up in the 50s and 60s and before you know we'll be in yeah. uh been worse. Yeah, oh, yeah, we could be out west. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been worse. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Dr. Janet Garcia Hallett is the is the book is the author of this wonderful book, Invisible Mothers, Unseen Yet Hyper Hyper Visible After uh, Incarceration. And we had a wonderful conversation at Possible Futures uh, Bookstore. But before we even had those conversations, I I met her and I was intrigued by uh, the book. And and the and the reasoning behind the book, and uh, and it started as an academic effort, and then she was like, "Oh, wait a minute! I need to get this to the people, so yeah. that they can read about what's happening." So, g give us the background on the on the story of why this why you why you went from an academic exercise to a a real full on book. Yeah, so it started off as a dissertation project. Um, I had an interest in people's experiences after incarceration, well, really before incarceration. And I wanted to focus on women's stories and specifically mother's stories because I was very much involved in my community. I'm from Harlem, um, whether it's volunteer work or internships, and I was always coming in contact with women in the system. Um, but their stories were always um, kind of ignored or untold. Um, so I wanted to focus on this particular topic for my dissertation, but in the process of traveling all throughout New York City and doing these interviews and sitting in mothers' homes and meeting their children and eating meals with them, lunch and dinner at like local shops in the city, um, I thought it was more important than just to stick with an academic audience. So it became bigger than just a dissertation. And granted, the dissertation is a project in and of itself. Very <laughs> much a project in and of itself. Um, but I wanted it to be a bigger project than just an academic audience uh, with how much I was touched during these conversations and really kind of digging in deep to learning a lot about uh, mothers who opened up, you know, to me, a stranger for many of them, I was a stranger to them. Um, so I was just so touched by their stories and the, the whole experience that I decided it should be a book project um, where it would have a larger readership than just kind of an academic audience that would decide to actually read a dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, and I had no idea how to do that. <laughs> We're not kind of 
taught how to write a book, um, and especially a book outside of academia that can be read by others. So it was definitely a learning process to, to kind of transition um, the dissertation into a book. And it took several years, especially through a pandemic to accomplish that. But um, I just, I wanted it to have a larger audience than just an academic audience, given, given the stories and the narratives that was being shared with me during that time. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go back because I understand because you're, you're an Afro-Latina and yeah. your, your people are from, where are your people Honduras. from? Honduras. Honduras. And you grew up in Harlem. Yes. And, uh, and that sort of shaped what you saw, right? Uh, you are the, uh, you are the, the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal, <laughs> you're, you're, you're the, the, you're the professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven, Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences. Sciences. So, but in your formative years, you got to see uh, the very things that you are talking about in your book, women coming back into community. You know, sometimes they'd go away and then they'd come back and you start to understand what that meant. Talk a little bit about what you saw as a young woman that sort of uh, colored your your view on this. Yeah, so... With growing up in Harlem, Harlem was definitely, there were a lot of drugs in Harlem. It's very common to see people under the influence um, while walking to school. It was only four blocks away, but it was kind of very common to see. Um, and unfortunately, looking back, it was very much the norm. You know, at the time, I didn't really, at the beginning, I didn't really understand that it was anything necessarily wrong. It was just kind of the norm of what was going on. Um, within the four block radius to kind of get to school. Um, Harlem looks so different now, but a lot of empty lots, a lot of underdevelopment. There was no interest in anyone being in Harlem at the time. Um, and even down to like some of my peers and family members being um, involved in the criminal legal system or engaging in substance use um, to police raids inside our apartment building. It was kind of very much the norm. Um, and that's beside you know, gangs and, and things of that nature. So um, growing up, this was uh, what I was exposed to just by being kind of in that setting. Um, and so one thing that I really always noticed is I would often see individuals who, who I knew personally or who I would kind of see out and about in the, in the community. And then you would also see somewhat of the downfall when they would start to engage in substance use, um, the loss of weight and the, the attire and things of that nature, um, down to a police rate of like an apartment building when, when they're brought into the system. So to kind of see at a young age, someone who is a nurse and then who got wrapped up in substance use and then who was incarcerated as a response to the substance use instead of being provided with support. Um, it just seemed counterintuitive to me. And I always questioned like why was why was that the response um, instead of actually having services or having resources that can actually help with the underlying issues there. Um, so I always had kind of an interest in understanding why that was our go-to response to be more punitive, um, but also understanding like better understanding what led up to that point of what we can do to prevent that from happening at the front end. Um, so I always had an interest for that reason in the field of criminal justice. 
Um, I never really knew exactly what I wanted to do, but I just knew that was what I was interested in, given, uh, you know, what I observed, what I saw and everything. Um, so that always kind of directed me into studying, taking certain classes and studying uh, the criminal legal system. Um, at first, at one point, I thought I was interested in a psychological standpoint. And then I realized this is too, this is too individualized. Completely threw that out the window and started focusing on more of the socio sociological aspect of it. Um, so if anyone looks at my undergrad, you'll see that I double majored in psychology and sociology. And then I kind of took off with the with the social because it was just so focused on the individual and mindset, but rarely encountered uh, or integrated the, the social and structural. Um, so that's that's where I continue to stand now at this point. Um, in terms of in terms of my interests. So what I what I found hugely fascinating, uh, Dr. Garcia Hallett, is that uh, in this book you talk to a very specific population that nobody talks to. Like you were very deliberate and, and intentional about who you were talking to, um, a, a population of women um, that folks never talk to. Could you talk a little bit about? you're thinking around that and, and why that's important? Yes. So I am Afro-Latina, as you mentioned, my family's from Honduras. I'm the youngest of eight. I was born here in the States. Um, so often, you know, over the years, I've come to realize when people see me, they assume that I am African-American. And there have been plenty of situations where I've had people speak about me in Spanish, um, assuming that I wasn't Afro-Latina or that I didn't understand. Um, and now it's been situations where I've been at the doctor's office and they're asking me questions, oh, like date of birth and things of that nature. And then I hear silence and I look over at the computer and they mark off African-American in terms of like the, the, the ethnicity. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm Latina. So, and they're shocked and confused, but also they didn't ask me. They just put the information on my behalf. So there's situations where I realize that I'm, you know, I'm viewed in one way that's differently from what I identify in my cultural background. And I always had an interest, well, how does this play out for other individuals in terms of how they're perceived and whether that's um, different from how they identify? And we see this right now a lot with, you know, gender identity. Um, so, and I had an interest specifically across um, ethnic groups and ethnic identities. So I specifically wanted to speak with not only African-American mothers, but also Latina mothers and West Indian mothers. So New York City, you know, there's a large population. I mean, it's a melting pot. We have everyone in New York City. We have a lot of African-American mothers in New York City, Latina mothers and West Indian mothers. Um, so I specifically wanted to speak with these three groups and to better understand, what well, is there anything different going on in how they're treated or how they're perceived or just how they experience life after incarceration that we're not really understanding because we just want, you know, everybody in, under a big, large racial umbrella as Black, which, you know, it has its warrants. It's definitely important, but I, I was wondering if there's something missing there, if we're not specifically tapping into um, assumptions about different ethnic groups. Um, so I took it upon myself to really focus on speaking with African-American, Latina, and West Indian mothers. And it was, it was difficult. There, there were some struggles in terms because of- they're, Because they have a culture of 
Uh uh-uh, uh, we're not gonna tell you our business. <laughs> yeah, we don't know you. You're not family. Uh, um, we don't tell outsiders our our business. Why are you here? What are you gonna do with this information? So it was a lot of sharing. You know why I'm here. Why I have an interest in this. Um, I was a student at the time that I was interviewing the mothers. So say I'm a student. I haven't been through the system myself. I'm from Harlem. I have an interest in understanding from your point of view for you to share your story, for you to share your voice. And that's why I'm here. And I recorded the interviews with their permission to say, hey, this is your language. These are your words. I'm not going to change it in any way. And just to highlight it to others who don't understand. Um, But I know that there is a lack of trust, especially when you're in the criminal legal system, because it's embedded in taking advantage in the press and marginalized groups. So lack of trust is a very real thing. And in the common, for some mothers, I already knew them before I officially interviewed them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for most of them, it was just like, hey, there's this person I met and spoke with. She's awesome. Like, hey, you want to speak with her? And that's how I met a lot of the mothers to um, to interview as part of this project. But for the most part, yeah, of course, you want to keep things within your own family network or within your own group if you feel like others have in the past stigmatized you for your experience um or or your your hurdles so that was that was a a part of the the struggle on my part um but I found that with speaking with mothers and them sharing kind of how the discussion went and sharing like how they felt during it that was that was helpful I I I, I am fascinated and struck by and and uh, and you, and you talk about some of the day-to-day struggles that these folks uh that these women face and yeah. and how they navigate systems that are not set up or conducive to their success at least that's how I see it I could be wrong but I don't feel like I mean I I just just you know uh uh seeing the systems in place uh doesn't seem to take into account the differences uh, and cultural differences of people um, from their communities into communities, back to community. Yeah. So there were a lot of unique um, hurdles in terms of coming out and trying to find and establish a support network. Um, There's a lot of stigma just in general when individuals are perceived as doing something wrong and mm-hmm. others don't fully understand the full context or the full story. Um, in addition to that, some of the mothers kind of described that there is also um, some additional stigma from family or just ethnic communities. Oh, I um, remember you talking about this. I was quite shocked. I think, I, what I think what you're going to say, <laughs> I was quite. it was quite shocking, right? Because I, I get it. It makes sense in some weird sort of cultural way, but it is shocking. So continue, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I I remember when you said it, when we were talking about it, possible futures and you talk about yeah. some of the stigmas that people face within their own communities and families yeah. on top of the stigma that comes with, you know, in the in the outer world and the greater world about, you know, whatever the crime is and but what you the reasons why you go to jail the fact that you go to jail um is its own stigma so absolutely so one thing i found that was interesting um and again i went into this project not knowing what to expect or not knowing kind of where the conversation would go but allowing space for 
the conversations to go and whatever direction that they felt comfortable. And one thing that I learned from the mothers was that depending on um, kind of how they identified in terms of ethnic identity and the type of um, offense that they were incarcerated for, the response differed um, from their own family members and sometimes their own community. So um, the point that you're that you're kind of bringing up was in terms of um, a Haitian mother that I spoke with and she she worked at a bank. She had, you know, what we would consider like a good job. She worked at a bank. She had some education behind her back. Um, and then at a somewhat older age, she got involved in substance use. And to support that use, um, she would she needed finances. So one thing she did in order to gain the finances to support the use was um, engage in sex work or with some say prostitution. Um, in addition to that, um, stealing from others as a way to fund that substance use. And um, she explained a conversation that she had with her own mother who was born in Haiti. She was born in the States herself and how her mother would say to her, well, back in Haiti, you know, it's it's wrong to be a thief. Like no one would want you around as a thief uh, because they can't trust you. That she'd rather her be a prostitute because at least she's working for the money and not stealing from others. Um, and that's a heavy, that's a heavy thing. Like that is so heavy, Dr. Garcia Hallett. Heavy. It was heavy for her too, because she for her, sex work was very much difficult for her to, en to engage in because of how she felt while um, engaging in it in terms of her self-worth, in terms of how she was treated by other individuals. So it was very much emotionally difficult for her, um, but she had a bigger problem in terms of feeling the need to find the substance use. Um, so for her, um, stealing funds from another individual was less intertwined with that emotional baggage, um, yet her mother viewed it completely differently, and both of them tied it to like cultural perceptions of work ethic and, and needing to work or do something that's viewed as legitimate work in order to get what you want. Um, and that's probably the, one of the most extreme examples um, but another situation like that was also from a Latina woman who whose family member also kind of described a similar response, like, oh, family back home are not going to want to support you financially if they know that you committed money fraud, like a check fraud in that situation. And so she lied to, she lied to family um, and said that she got in a fight with someone else. So that way they can help post money for bail. So the mother was very much bothered because she was presented as a violent person, she said, like, you you presented me as a violent person for fighting, but I didn't fight anybody. I just, you know, I did this to get finances, but that was hidden from family because it was viewed as less worthy of receiving financial support than to be seen as, oh, no, you fought over something. And maybe that was viewed as more legitimate reason to help you and post out a bill. So it was it was definitely interesting to hear kind of um, ties to family support and what it meant in terms of working like a work ethic, 
Um, but very similar conversations came up in terms of employment and opportunities for employment from um, white employers specifically and who was viewed as, or who was perceived as having more work ethic in terms of different um, ethnic groups where people who were perceived as being foreigners were assumed to be or assumed to have a higher work ethic or a more valuable employee or potential employee compared to someone else who was African-American. Um, and so they had those conversations as well in terms of how they believe they're perceived when they're going into the job market. So not only the criminal record, but also in terms of like perceptions of their ethnic identity. So it was, um, and again, these are some things that are, are a bit outside of the scope of the criminal legal system, but still ties into how different groups are, are perceived um, and then how different groups may navigate kind of treatment depending on like cultural family values in terms of what they, what they did. Mm. I, so. Another thing that I found quite striking too, and I didn't, I, I have not given any thought to this until you raised it when mm -hmm. we had our conversation at Possible Futures, is this idea of uh, uh, aging parents coming out of the system and going to live with their adult children yeah. um, as part of you know, survival and all that other kind of stuff and how challenging that can be. Yeah. Do you wanna talk a little bit about that? Like what, sure. like how that shook out for you and, and how'd you come across that? And, and the thing with age, so when we talk about who's involved in the criminal legal system, we, we often talk about the individuals who are younger in age, right? Um, so teenagers, early 20s, maybe sometimes into their 30s. Um, and some of the women were a bit older in age, or they had spent some time since they've been released. So they talk about what life is like for them when their children are grown adults. So they're still their children, yet they're grown adults. And some, in some cases, they have children of their own. Um, so that poses a unique kind of um, obstacle in navigating those relationships when now their children have family of their own and the mom still kind of needs some support. Um, so there's always kind of a discussion like, yeah, I raised the children so that they can kind of be on their own and, you know, or, or help in a certain way. Um, so when the woman were, there was one particular woman who was about 62 and she described being unemployed and wanting to be engaged, wanting to work and wanting to be involved and not just kind of be stagnant in life. But she viewed it as an obstacle to find work. She was approaching the age of retirement, who would want to hire her if she was already um, approaching retirement? Um, and then she described thinking about going back to school, but by the time she was done with school, then what would she do with that? She'll be in the same predicament. So she believed it was difficult for her given her age, um, well, given the age that she went into prison, the age that, in which she was released, Mm -hmm. And believing that there were no opportunities for her to do something that would be beneficial for her in the end, which was get employment. And that was very similar with another woman who was a bit younger in age, about 60, where she kind of felt the same by the time she's done with school, if she were to go back to school, she'll be much older in age and who would want to hire her, that they'll rather hire someone who's much younger, who's fresh out of college, maybe eager to work for little money with no experience 
and they view that as uh, another barrier besides just having a criminal record, but being older in age. Um, and in the meantime, needing to rely on their children and feeling like a burden on their children um, and they were much older in age. So it was, it's something we don't hear too much about in terms of the criminal justice uh, research or literature, but it was, it's still a reality for them. Like, even if someone is incarcerated at a younger age, the effects can still trigger, trickle down into years later, in some cases, decades later. Oh, yeah. 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 So, uh, 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 and another sticking point and 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 uh another sticking point that is connected to that is housing like where do people live when they come out because so many doors close to you because you have a, a record right like you know you come out and you're trying like to find housing, housing. and mm -hmm. and nobody and public housing is like no we won't take you although they're starting to make some inroads now but for the most part though housing is tenuous yeah so how yeah i like the comment you made um in terms of now they're trying to kind of make some adjustments because they realize that previous policy was not being in the place with someone um with a criminal record especially like a felony or substance use pose a huge barrier to anyone who had uh, a record um and having family in that particular um, housing development um but because they realized that also was disproportionately affecting people of color. Then they have recently, at least in New York, have recently made some um, changes to how they have that language there and how they approach it. Um, but still housing is a huge barrier. And I know in New York City, also New Haven, um, in terms of being able to find, find sustainable housing and maintain sustainable housing after incarceration. Um, that was hands down one of the most difficult obstacles, which also tied into trying to regain custody of children when they were underage. So it was a trickle effect, finding, finding employment, someone willing to hire you, maintaining that employment in the midst of all the obstacles post-incarceration, um, having, finding and maintaining housing, regaining custody of children, um, trying to not violate parole, given all those standards that come into place, random visits, random drug tests, you need to report if you change housing, but housing is so um, unstable that chances are you may need to move a different place or stay with a different family member. So all these things are intertwined that can make life difficult after incarceration, where it, it can be very overwhelming, um, it, it, very difficult to try to get yourself um, on a steady landing after incarceration. Mm. All right. So and working on this on this book um mm -hmm. uh what what did you what what did you what conclusions did you get to and and what surprised you ooh so <clears throat> what surprised me i want to say everything <laughs> so <laughs> it, i do want to say everything because i really did even though i i did my own like research and studies is is never the same thing as speaking with someone with who's had that lived experience. Um, and in my case, speaking to 37 mothers who had that who had that lived experience with a range of time from seven days to as long as five years, right? Um, so I'm gonna say everything was definitely a learning curve for me. And it's there's no other um feeling than to sit across from individuals who are sharing their life journeys with you 
compared to kind of like reading those research articles that you have uh, assigned to you in the class. Um, so I, I would say everything that was shared with me was definitely a learning journey. Um, and uh, the second thing you asked was it, in moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, and and offer your advices to systems. You know, like where do you see the where uh, some things need to be done a little differently, or or yeah. what what improvements could what's what things could really make a have a bigger impact on in supporting folks in community who are returning, particularly specifically mothers. Yeah. So one of the big things that the mothers talked about um, were reentry programs and also recovery programs. So um, unfortunately, substance use is very common among women in the system. Um, and that was the same for the 37 mothers that I spoke with. The majority of them had some history with substance use. Um, and with that, it was often tied to a history of childhood trauma or physical abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, and the substance use was kind of like a, a coping mechanism to, to, um, to difficult situations, to put it very broadly. Um, within reentry programs, those mothers who experienced some history of substance use felt kind of another layer, layer of stigma and judgment from those who did not have a history of substance use. Um, they felt a lot of kind of like mother blaming and um, mother blaming and shame, which was perceived to be a best approach, but from the people actually running the program, but the mothers described it as more harmful. Um, mm. We're being told, well, you have to stay on the straight and narrow. If you don't, you're never gonna get your children back. Um, so comments like these were frequently made um, to kind of tell them the harm that would happen if they didn't do right by the system. Um, but it was actually taken, um, it was actually more harmful for them to constantly be reminded, like, don't F up, don't F up, don't F up, because you're never going to get your children back, or you're going to go right back in the system. Um, because it really showed that those um, program personnel really didn't believe in them. They were focused on the negative instead of focusing on more the strengths and leaning into the strengths that, that would be more beneficial to them. Um, so I would say just in general for individuals and programs, program personnel that are working with individuals who've been impacted by the system, it's to it's really lean into um, the pros, the strengths, and ways to reinforce that um, because showing pathways, showing um, approaches or options that can be taken is more helpful than focusing on the negative consequences. Um, focusing on the negative because that's already known. Try something different and showing, okay, what can be done and helping them in that journey. Um, so, and, and this is kind of common within um, social work. But I feel like sometimes within these programs, they're ran by a punitive system and they integrate that punitive language for getting kind of mm. the underlying mission within social work, which is more of a strength-based approach. But when we have reentry programs that run under a punitive correctional system that's embedded in punitiveness, then that trickles into how things are ran and the language that comes from the personnel as well. 
Um, so that goes for reentry programs, that goes for recovery programs, um, parenting programs, and trying to show mothers how to parent. Um, so it, there's just a number of ways in which their language, the mother's language, the mother's journeys, their hopes, um, the reality of the barriers really need to be taken into consideration for a more specific fine-tuned um, suggestions on what can be done and what would be helpful for their specific circumstances then a broader overarching punitive response like fix this fix this do this or you're going back or you're never going to see your children or you'll never get hired etc so I would say that was definitely something that came up very very frequently as being problematic and that really um that was really the case across different aspects, whether it was who was receiving housing or not, whether who was given a job opportunity, who was speaking to them at reentry or recovery programs. That was one of the most consistent themes was in terms of how they're approached, how they're spoken to, assumptions and punitive language that's shared with them, and it affected their day-to-day -day, um, in so many various ways. Mm. I mean, well, we, I mean, we, we know that. So, I mean, we, we know that when you speak kind words to people, people respond in kind. If you, if you speak to people in, in punitive ways and soul breaking ways and insulting ways that, that, that carries with them and they take it with them. So that's what you're going to get back. <laughs> that's what you're going to get back. So, yeah. so anyway, mm -hmm. y'all can pick this book up at uh, possible futures over there at 318 Edgewood Avenue. I so enjoy talking to you, Dr. Janet Garcia Hallett. And uh, I look forward to more conversations with you about this book. Uh, so anybody who wants to know something about uh, uh, mothers coming through the system and coming from the system, uh, it might it might be worth their while to pick this up. And it, and it's and it's it's not an academic read. It really is for uh, for those who are truly interested in this population of folks. Thanks, Harry, for putting that up. Um, it really is uh, uh, slated for this population of folks. I thank you so much, Janet. It's very nice to see you. It's always good chatting with you. Always great to see you. And I will see you at Possible Futures. I know it. <laughs> yes, I'll be there. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. I'll be back tomorrow with uh, with my friend Patty Rooster from the Yale Campaign School. You know, it's the end of Women's History Month. I've tried to talk to as many women as I can this month. And uh, thank you, Dr. Uh, Janet uh, garcia Hallett. I appreciate you. And tomorrow, Patty Russo from the Campaign School at Yale. I will see y'all tomorrow. Be good out there and be warm. Woo! <laughs> Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut. And you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Streaming live at newhavenindependent.org.